Well, this evening we are um, looking at a, um, an encounter on the other side of Jesus' death and, and resurrection. This encounter of the risen Lord Jesus and his disciples, and especially and specifically uh, with Thomas. Uh, now, Thomas was one of the 12 disciples. Um, he was one of those uh, men uh, who were privileged greatly to, to walk and live and learn closely uh, with Jesus during the three years of his public ministry. And although the scriptures don't reveal much about this man, um, he's perhaps one of the more peripheral uh, disciples, uh, perhaps compared to um, uh, Peter and, and James and John um, uh, particularly. Um, clearly, he knew Jesus intimately. He spent three years uh, working alongside him. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000. He was present at Lazarus' resurrection. He heard the Sermon on the Mount with his own ears. He sat around the table for the Last Supper. He was by Jesus' side in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus was arrested. He was at the foot of the cross as his Lord was crucified. This man was there at every step of Jesus' ministry. And now we see him encountering the risen Jesus. Now, as is fully understandable, some of the disciples were, were struggling to understand and, and, and process uh, the significance of Jesus' resurrection. They were a little bit slow to grasp what had happened uh, in those days. Um, John, uh, who, who is the author of this gospel, describes the situation to us. To us and he makes clear when this event took place. It took place on the Sunday evening, the first day of the week, verse 19. Um, most of the uh, disciples um, were, were uh, gathered together. Um, they were in the upper room. They had the, the, the door locked out of fear. Remember, this was a very charged and very uh, volatile environment at the time. Uh, they'd seen Jesus be arrested. They'd seen the unrest uh, of recent days. Uh, they were in fear. You would have thought that the, uh, the encounter that they have with Jesus, his resurrected body, would um, dispel the fears that they faced. Perhaps that when they saw him, they would be full of uh, great excitement. But they were still huddled together in the upper room. Uh, they were in hiding. They were feeling the effects of the imminent threat of persecution. And so their meeting together is, is, in this way, is perhaps not hard for us to understand. Uh, they were feeling on edge. There's already been a series of incredible happenings and, and experiences um, on that day, prior to this meeting. You see, Jesus had already appeared to Mary Magdalene. Uh, we read about that in the, in the previous um, ten or so verses. Um, Jesus had appeared to Cleopas and his companion, and also to Peter. It made perfect sense um, that everyone would be brought together in a, in, a, in, a, in a feeling of wonder and amazement, despite the fear that they felt. And it's into this occasion, this very charged atmosphere, this, this feeling of, of excitement on the one hand, worry on the other, uh, that Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he says to them, peace be with you, verse 19. Peace be with you. Now, that is not in and of itself a surprising uh, statement. 
Um, perhaps it might not be something that we would say, especially today, um, but it was a standard Jewish greeting of the time. It was very uh, a familiar greeting. If we look at the context of this greeting, we can see that John, as he writes this uh, encounter down, is making a point to us. It's the same phrase that's repeated in verse uh, 21 again. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Jesus is, uh, sorry, John is recording this greeting and, and recording these words uh, specifically, uh, not to waste space with the obvious, um, that it was a, a customary you know, salutation uh, from one Jew to another, but it calls to mind the final words which Jesus uttered during his time with the disciples on the night before his crucifixion. So we read in John chapter 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so before his death, before those events um, on Calvary, Jesus had promised the full reality of his peace on his people. So it wasn't just a customary greeting. It was a callback to what he had previously said to them. It had a depth of meaning. It wasn't just hi. It wasn't just hello, how are you doing? It was a greeting of peace delivered by the giver of peace. The giver of peace whose death and resurrection actually and fully merited true and everlasting peace. Now, as he is raised from the dead, he enters into their midst, and as they stand in utter amazement, he says, peace be with you. And he shows them his hands, and he shows them the wound in his side, and he does so as if to say, I did what I said I was going to do. If you hark back to this morning, he describes in great detail to his disciples exactly what is going to happen to him. And so as he appears to his disciples in the locked room, he's saying, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. I have won that peace for you. And I didn't, didn't do it through a political act. I didn't do it as some thought of me being a, a liberator. I did it through my death. And more than that, I did it through my humiliation. And so he says again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And what we see in these words is John opening up um, the great commission. The great command for these disciples to go out to all the corners of the earth to proclaim the work of Jesus to, to not keep that peace to themselves. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Go. Tell the world a victory that's been accomplished. Go. Tell the world of redemption that's been accomplished. Go. Get out of this locked room and tell the world of the salvation which has been accomplished. And then we read something remarkable. Verse 22. And when he had said this, 
he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? It's an unusual uh, verse in the context of, of the Gospels. What does it mean, especially in the light of the significance of the day of Pentecost, which is yet to happen, which will happen sometime after? What does it mean in the light of Jesus' words that the Spirit would, would fall upon them after he ascended? Here he is in the upper room. He hasn't ascended to be with the Father yet. Pentecost hasn't come yet. And yet he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. What's John getting at uh, with recording those words? Uh, perhaps some might say, oh, this shows that John, the author of this gospel, is a bit confused. He's getting things in a bit of a muddle. He's getting things in the wrong order. Maybe his memories of the events are not quite matching up. Well, in biblical tradition, going back to the Old Testament, the prophets of old would not only communicate God's word through telling it, but also through the physical act of acting it out. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. It wasn't a surprise Pentecost. It wasn't a, a precursor to Pentecost. But rather, Jesus is symbolically previewing what is about to happen in the coming days. And it's the physical picture of Jesus' breath which points to the descending spirit which is to come on Pentecost. And even more than that, it, again, it points back to some of Jesus' own teaching. In John chapter 3, verse 8, we read, Jesus says these words, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In that discussion with Nicodemus, uh, one of the Pharisees who was curious to understand uh, what salvation was, Jesus played around with the language. The word for breath is the same word for wind, which is the same word for spirit. So Jesus equates the giving of the Holy Spirit with his own breathing. And that's why we can say with complete theological conviction that the Holy Spirit proceeds not only from the Father, but also from the Son, from the one triune God. The one triune God who is perfect in Trinity. And so we see from these first few verses of this passage that Jesus was intent on appearing to all of his disciples. To say to them, it's been accomplished. To say to them, peace uh, has been completed. To say to them, well, I told you that I would die on the cross. I told you that I would do so to appease the wrath of my Father for the forgiveness of your sins. I told you that I would be raised after three days. I told you that I would defeat death. I told you that I would accomplish salvation. And I did all these things. But in appearing at the upper room, appearing before the disciples, encountering them as the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, there was a glaring problem that not everyone was there. Not everyone was there. So the first thing I want us to consider this evening is the absence of Thomas. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene. He'd appeared to John and Peter. And now he appears to the ten disciples. Judas, of course, isn't there. And Thomas is missing. But the rest of the ten disciples are there in the upper room, congregated together. Well, there's one obvious lesson for us to take from this absence of uh, Thomas. That in being absent, for whatever reason, and we don't have the context of why Thomas wasn't there, but for whatever reason, he missed the blessing of being encountered by his Savior. Well, what did he miss? He, he, He missed the resurrection appearance. He missed part of that monumental occasion when Jesus appeared to those who were closest to him. There's a a message for us there, an easy application for us to make. Um, You never know what you're going to miss if if you don't come to church, if you don't come uh, Sunday by Sunday, if you miss the means of grace, um, if you miss assembling as part of God's people together. There's a blessing as we meet. Perhaps if you find yourself um, regularly uh, unable to attend a a Sunday or a, a prayer meeting, You're missing out on the means of grace. You're missing out on blessing. Now, in order to understand Thomas' absence, we need to examine a little bit of what the Scriptures say, or perhaps doesn't say, about Thomas' character. There's not much within the Gospels about him, but we read uh, in John chapter 11 the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, Jesus had gone across the Jordan River. Um, He'd gone many, many miles away from Jerusalem. He'd gone to the location where John had been baptized, uh, John the Baptist. And chapter 10 describes the ministry of Jesus within this location as being one of the most fruitful periods of his ministry um, during his entire public ministry, uh, a time when when many um, uh, believed, many came to faith as a consequence of his time spent on the other side of, of the Jordan. But during the midst of that Uh, a great time of uh, fruit, news came that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, uh, was was sick. And it's obvious from the the gospel records that this home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus was a home that was particularly close to Jesus. This was a home that he had great personal affinity uh, to. And Jesus seems to have stayed there in Bethany uh, perhaps a number of times. But instead of going to visit Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Jesus decides to continue with his ministry, saying to the disciples, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Uh, If you're familiar with with that particular passage, you might remember what happens next. Um, News came that Lazarus had died. And it's at that point that Jesus says to his disciples, now, let's go to Bethany. And the disciples are a little bit unsure. They say to Jesus, well, the last time you were there, they tried to stone you. And it's at that point that we we see something of Thomas. Uh, Because he interjects the first words that we have of Thomas in John's Gospel. He says in in verse 16, let's go with him so that we may die with him. Now, you can interpret that statement in, in, in two ways. You can interpret it as deep pessimism on Thomas's behalf. Um, that is words of gloom, words of despair, 
everything is black. Um, and there are some commentators who, who paint the picture of Thomas as basically being the Eeyore of the disciples. You remember Eeyore from, from Winnie the Pooh? Um, constantly seeing the worst in everything. Constantly complaining, saying, woe is, woe is me. Um, that's how uh, the American uh, Baptist uh, minister John MacArthur describes him. He says, Thomas was a somewhat negative person. He was a worrywart, a brooder. He tended to be anxious and angst-ridden. He was like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. He anticipated the worst of, uh, all the time. Pessimism rather than doubt seems to have been his besetting sin. As if, John was, uh, as if Thomas was saying in John 10, if we go back to Bethany, that's it. It's curtains. It's all over. We're going to be stoned. We're going to be killed. Let's just, let's just get on with it. Let's get it out of the way. But it's also possible to interpret Thomas's uh, comment in, a, in a, a different way. Because the evidence did seem to be that the disciples, um, uh, for going back to Bethany, Jesus may well face what he had faced before. And so actually, we could interpret it as pessimism, but we could also interpret it as being courage. And you have to admire his willingness to stand for Jesus. He could at this point have simply run away. And yet he says, we will go back with him, uh, even at the cost of his life. That's something that we can admire within Thomas. Uh, Being a disciple of Jesus, as we uh, learnt about this morning, means being willing to follow him, despite the consequences, despite the cost that it takes to be with Jesus. Clearly, um, whether shrouded in pessimism or or in courage, um, this is certainly... A very pragmatic character. He's no dreamy-eyed romantic. Uh, he's no fair-weather friend. To, 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 to Thomas at this point, there is a, a real and a present danger in going back to Bethany. And Thomas knows that it could cost him his life. He doesn't run. He doesn't plead with Jesus not to go. Uh, he loves Jesus and he's willing to go with Jesus even into certain death. Um, and Thomas's love for Jesus shows up again in, in, in John 14. This time in the upper room. Jesus said to his disciples, "Um, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he adds those words, where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And it leads to that famous statement of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And it's at that point that we see Timothy's second contribution. That's Timothy. Thomas's second contribution in the Gospels. Because Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And within that interaction, there's a note of panic and, and confusion in Thomas's voice. Here's a man who wants to be in Jesus' presence. And the thought that most concerns Thomas in John 14 is that there may come a time when he's not able to find Jesus anymore. That he's actually so um, committed to Jesus as his Lord and Saviour that the thought of Jesus' absence away from him, not being able to find him again, was something that troubled him. And Jesus, uh, Thomas loved Jesus. And the thought of losing him caused him great pain. The thought of not being in his presence was something that distressed him. Well, I wonder if that's you uh, today, I wonder if you can empathise with, with Thomas here. 
Have you fallen in love with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you committed to follow him? Are you desperate to follow him? And so considering the two other occasions that we see Thomas mentioned in John's Gospel, his absence from this meeting in John chapter 20 uh, stands out in contrast. Um, it's noticeable that he is not there. Well, why isn't he there? That's the big question. Why isn't Thomas there with the other disciples? What is he doing? Where is he? It's so tempting to perhaps say something like, well, Thomas was just away brooding somewhere. He was just pulling the Eeyore routine. He was just engulfed by clouds of darkness and, and despondency and, and wallowing in self-pity. He wanted to be in his own company. Misery likes its own company. Maybe that was the case. We don't know. We don't know why Thomas wasn't present at this time as the other disciples met uh, on the first eve of the resurrection. The only thing we know for sure is that he wasn't there. And he missed a great blessing, whatever the reason. Well, secondly, this evening, we have the, the doubt of Thomas. He said to the disciples, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, according to J.I. Packer, um, the theologian, Thomas was guilty of what he calls willful skepticism. It's an easy and a direct presumption to make at this point. When, when you know you're wrong, there's something in you that doesn't really want to admit that you're wrong. Perhaps you're having a disagreement with your husband or your wife. Uh, perhaps you're uh, falling out over an issue and you know you're wrong. But you don't want to admit that you're wrong. And so you end up going in a, a long-winded expedition to justify your position in order that you may come out looking like the one who, who was principled and clever and rational. That never works with my wife. Uh, often the argument boils down to something along the lines of, well, you aren't considering the complexities of the issue. You aren't understanding the full picture of, of what I'm trying to say. Well, perhaps in Thomas's mind, that was his line of thought. It was all very well for the other ten disciples to say that they'd seen Jesus, but the fact of the matter is they hadn't asked the hard questions. They hadn't asked the right questions. They hadn't asked the Thomas questions. Well, that's willful skepticism. And there's no sense in his words uh, that he hopes his fellow disciples were right. He, he refuses to give his friends, those that have known him intimately for the last three years, the benefit of the doubt. And ultimately, in his skepticism, Thomas places the burden on Jesus to prove himself. He believes that he has good reasons for his skepticism. And he says as much to the disciples when they come to him. We don't know when they came to him, whether it was the Sunday morning or midweek, whenever it was. But when they come to him and they, they say what has happened, he says, and they say to him, we've seen the Lord. He wants his own proof. Now at this point, it's important to say we can't imagine what's going on in Thomas's mind. We can't imagine the, the chaos perhaps he felt. <coughs> um, absent on a Sunday. Time has passed eight days later, verse 26. Can you imagine the torment going through his brain? The chaos of the events that have just proceeded. Well, what's the future going to look like for him? And perhaps you've received some bad news at some point in your life. Perhaps you've been let go from a job or, or turned away from an opportunity you were, you were aspiring to. 
Perhaps you've had dreams that have, that have crashed down for, for reasons beyond your control. Perhaps you can recognize something of Thomas's disappointment here. Can you imagine the stress on Thomas that he must have felt? Maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe that's where he was. Off by himself, wondering what was going to happen in the, the rest of his life. Well, do you notice that on the Sunday evening when Thomas is there with the disciples and the doors are shut, Jesus responds in exactly the same way again. Jesus appears and says to them, peace be with you. (coughs) And do you also notice that as he enters the room and, and says, peace be with you, he doesn't faff around with some niceties. He doesn't look to see what, you know, food provision there is. He doesn't look to, to have a little uh, conversation about the weather. He arrives and he turns to Thomas. Immediately, he turns to Thomas and says, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Who told Jesus that, uh, that Thomas had said such things? Who's been talking? Who's told tales of Thomas and on Thomas for his unbelief? Well, it's at this point in the encounter that we willingly put Thomas aside. Because as with every other encounter that we see throughout the Gospels, as Jesus uh, meets a variety of individuals uh, from uh, the disciples through to those that he healed, um, those that he spoke to, um, it never really matters who the encountered were. It's the one doing the encountering that matters. Well, who told Jesus all about Thomas's doubt? No one. Jesus knew. He knew. Isn't that both a frightening and a reassuring thing at the same time? Jesus knew what Thomas had said to the disciples because he knows everything. How did he know that? It wasn't that he had a, a, a secret web of spies telling him information. He knew Thomas's heart. He knew Thomas's thoughts. He knew Thomas's doubts. He knew Thomas's concerns. And what is more, this is why we can put Thomas to the side, he knows your heart. He knows your doubts. He knows your concerns. He knows the times that you are willfully skeptical like Thomas. He knows when you brood. He knows your stubbornness to admit you're wrong, even when you know that you are. And in knowing Thomas, Jesus goes straight for him. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And in knowing you, Jesus does the same. Perhaps we shouldn't be unduly critical of Thomas's demand for evidence. He's been somewhat cast as this character within the Gospels who uh, gets a bit of a bad name. We call him Doubting Thomas. 
Well, didn't Jesus on the previous appearance in the upper room show the disciples? That's when Thomas wasn't there. Well, he showed them. What did he show them? He showed them his hands and his side. And it's only after the disciples had seen his hands and his side that they believed, that they rejoiced. It's not as though Jesus is saying that asking for evidence is wrong. That's part of the reason that Jesus appears again and again before he ascends. He's giving a testimony, a testimony of the resurrection for the reality of his risen body. He's giving us the evidence that we need in his word. That we have recorded for us in full and a total completion as part of God's word. That's why we stand on scripture. That's why we stand on the authority of God's word. God's revelation of himself and all of his redemption plans from eternity to the completion of the kingdom. That Jesus is alive. That he really has ascended to the right hand of the Father. That he still bears the marks on his hands and on his side. The proof of his death. The proof of his resurrection. The proof of his victory. Some commentators on verse 27 say that what Jesus is actually doing here is is shaming Thomas. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Uh, Put on your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Well, we don't have the luxury of adverbs here to describe how this is happening. Um, To understand the tone of Jesus' voice as he speaks to Thomas. Did he speak to him sternly? Thomas, reach here your finger. And reach out with your hand. Was he angry? Was he rebuking? Was he shaming? Well, we don't know. And it's wrong to assume that. We don't have that in God's word. We don't have the adverbs to see how he spoke. But given the wider context of Jesus' relationship with his disciples, it seems far more likely that he spoke gently. That he spoke kindly. That he spoke graciously. This is the same Jesus who spoke to Peter tenderly. The man he knew would reject him. Because this tells us something of the gentleness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas, if this is what you want to see, if this is the evidence that you desire, then here I am. Look. Reach out. Put your hand here. Feel the holes in my hand. Because isn't that how Jesus deals with us? Even in our arrogance, even in our foolishness, even in our stubbornness, one of the attributes that we find ourselves drawn to time and again is his gentleness. He knows our faults. He knows our default ways. He knows the ways uh, that we are. He knows that whatever reasons, whatever the sins, whatever the complexities, the way we are, Jesus accepts. And so there is gentleness and tenderness and mercy between a saviour, between the saviour and his disciple. And Thomas replies, verse 28, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's remarkable the way that Jesus, uh, Thomas responds to Jesus. Using the, the title, the name, my Lord and my God. That's an acknowledgement on Thomas's behalf of who Jesus really is. Not just my good friend. Not just my, you know, my, my faithful travel companion. Not just out of relief that something good has come of, of something bad. This is Thomas acknowledging the authority of Jesus. My Lord. My God. He's seen something of the glory of Jesus in this encounter. A glory full of grace, a glory full of truth. And Thomas, whatever doubts he had, whatever gloom he held, whatever despondency he faced, are thrown away. In encountering the risen Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing it is to see something of the great magnitude of the Lord Jesus Christ's heart. A love for his children. A heart that loves Thomas. A heart that wants to see Thomas restored in faith. No more doubting Thomas, but faithful Thomas. He's saying to him, Thomas, come now. Don't come unbelievingly. Don't come looking for evidence. Come with faith and trust me. I did what I said I was going to do. I have defeated death. I have risen again. I have accomplished the victory that I promised. Well, do you see something of yourself uh, in this encounter? Do you see something of yourself in this man, Thomas? It can be very easy to find ourselves full of despondency and despair. And there can be many reasons for that. We live in a dark world. We live in a world that is oppressive. And there are things that happen to us personal circumstances, trials, tribulations that can be of great, uh, great tribulation to us. But will you be like Thomas? Will you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge him for who he is? My Lord and my God.